0: A couple of years ago in Shenzhen, I sat down for an interview with Ren Zhengfei, the founder and CEO of the Chinese technology giant Huawei. We spoke in Mandarin and Mr. Ren told me about the impact that growing tensions between the US and China were having on his company. By then, Huawei had become the poster child for China's dynamic tech sector, but also the focus of American anxieties at growing Chinese technological power. It was now on a U.S. blacklist, banned from accessing crucial U.S. technology. The Trump administration had labelled Huawei a threat to national security. (laughs) Huawei, Mr. Ren said, was like a sesame seed being squashed between two sides. But then Mr. Ren switched metaphors He pulled out an old black-and-white photo of a Soviet warplane from the Second World War. It had been shot to pieces, its wings and fuselage riddled with bullet holes. If the engine has no fuel, it won't make it home, he said, pointing to the photo. If the fuel tank is hit... It won't make it home. But if a few bullets hit its wings... ..well, the plane will eventually make it back to the Soviet Union. It will just have to fly a bit more slowly, he said. And that, Ren Zhengfei told me, was what it was like for Huawei. Battered by the US economic attacks, but still airborne... And still determined to make it home. This is Tectonic from the Financial Times. I'm James King, the FT's Global China editor, with the last in our six part series on the US China race for global tech supremacy. It's been two years since my interview with Ren Zhengfei, but the analogy he painted still applies today. If anything, the forces targeting that plane he mentioned have become ever more hostile. In this episode, how the growing tensions between the US and China could split the world into two competing technological spheres. It's been dubbed the Great Decoupling, And in this final episode, I'm asking what that decoupling might look like and whether it's even possible. On the surface of things, the technological landscapes of China and the US are already mostly distinct. It's sometimes called the Galapagos effect. Like the remote Pacific islands explored by Charles Darwin, China's technological landscape has developed its very own unique flora and fauna, different from that found anywhere else on the planet. The natural world analogies don't end there. Lillian Lee writes Chinese Characteristics, a newsletter covering Chinese startups. In China, they call people like her Sea Turtles, or Highway.
1: In some introductions, you usually say, oh, highway? I'm, I'm a sea turtle, and people know, okay, so I know your life story, you were born in China, you went abroad, and then you come back.
0: Lillian moved back to China in 2020, after living in London and working in tech for many years. And what struck her in that move was how China had developed an almost parallel virtual world.
1: I'll give a very simple but clear example to me. So, you know, in the UK or in the US, you have like Deliveroo or Grubhub or Uber East, where you order some things off an app and it shows up at you know maybe hopefully 30 minutes. And there is a Chinese equivalent called Meituan, but it's not just for food delivery. It's, you know, essentially a, a super app, but the plethora of things that's available in These apps is, um, at least initially for me, was kind of overwhelming and mind-blowing to to think that they can cram so much into uh, such a small interface. And so just navigating that process, you know, it hits you on a daily basis because you're so used to taking these things for granted in the West, you don't even think about it. That feels like a very different thing in China.
0: One of those super apps is called WeChat. It's a Chinese version of Facebook. Everybody uses it. I used to use it too when I lived in Beijing. It's handy for keeping in touch with friends. It's also good for booking doctor's appointments or paying utility bills and even applying for a job. Amazon has at least three Chinese lookalikes, the most famous of which is Alibaba. If you hail a ride in China, you won't be stepping into an Uber, but probably into a Didi instead. And some of those Didi cars are said to be driven by robots, apparently. YouTube, the U.S. video sharing platform, is blocked by Chinese censorship rules, opening the field for a tamer Chinese equivalent called Youku. In online dating, though, the tech evolution has followed a familiar pattern. You still swipe right on Tantan to show interest, just as you would on Tinder. It's, It's really a very striking feature. I've had that myself on several occasions. Every time I I go to China, there's new things I need to get my head around. But, you know, you, you speak Chinese with native fluency, you read the language. Could you tell us how long did it take you to sort of reorientate yourself in the tech world in China?
1: I think in terms of understanding the cultural context of Chinese tech, that actually probably takes six months to learn about 80% of it. There are still things that I come across regularly that, that still kind of baffles me and it takes me a while to reorientate.
0: One of the reasons for this uniqueness of the Chinese tech landscape is that ever since the internet and smartphones came along, the Chinese state has been restrictive to American tech companies working within its borders. Instead, they fostered their own digital platforms. In
2: terms of things like social media and search engines and sort of internet
0: censorship, of course, there's already been a big division of, of those markets. That's Paul Triolo. He's a senior vice president at the Albright Stonebridge Group, a consulting firm in Washington, D.C. He knows China well. He's been traveling there every year since 1989. So, for example, Google
2: and Facebook and Twitter can't operate in China. At the top of the stack, if you will, there's already been some decoupling.
0: But although on the surface China looks like a tech universe unto itself, This impression is in fact completely misleading. The roots connecting the US and China go very deep. Take for example where the US manufactures most of its high-end tech. US
2: companies and Western companies have a big presence in China. China has become this $1 trillion manufacturing juggernaut and has has these very unique capabilities globally to to do advanced manufacturing at scale. And so this is why many sectors have become dependent on China. And then we wake up one morning and, wow, you know, China is is dominating in whatever, rare earths and, you know, EV batteries and electronics manufacturing and packaging and testing for semiconductors, all
0: these key areas. And then there's the money issue. Much of the capital and know-how that propelled China's rise over the last four decades came either from the U.S. or other countries in the West. And much of the consumer boom enjoyed by the West over the same time period was enabled by China. It's not too much to say that a big chunk of U.S. prosperity is made in China and a big chunk of Chinese prosperity is made in the U.S. But there are plenty of Americans who now want to stop the flow of American capital into China.
3: We're increasingly in an adversarial position uh, vis-a-vis Beijing. And it's necessary now to think about how we diversify away from the country.
0: Roger Robinson is president of RWR Advisory Group, a consultancy that tracks Chinese investments all over the world. People like Roger think the U.S. shouldn't be funding Chinese tech companies. His lightbulb moment came all the way back in 1999, when he was reading through the investment portfolio of CalPERS, The pension fund for California public workers. He came across an unexpected link between CalPERS and the Chinese military.
3: I was looking over the CalPERS portfolio and their China exposure, and I took note of Polytechnologies, Narinco, China Resource Holdings. There were a number of companies in the portfolio of CalPERS that were, in my mind, rather well-known companies of the People's Liberation Army. And it it struck me as uh, ironic and concerning that American public employees were investing in the People's Liberation Army.
0: Today, there are thousands of Chinese companies traded on U.S. stock markets. And Roger says the big problem is that the U.S. doesn't know enough about what those companies are actually doing.
3: Over the past, say, 20 years, not one Chinese company has been compliant with US federal securities laws. That's a rather extraordinary statement.
0: What he's referring to there is the fact that Beijing won't let American regulators audit the books of Chinese companies. That includes Chinese companies listed in the US.
3: China has steadfastly refused to do so for reasons of national security, and frankly, they didn't want an American entity looking under the hood of Chinese companies because they might see some, uh, shall we say, some sporty uh, transfers of finance uh, with, uh, for example, the PLA or Chinese uh, security services or the intelligence community. And yet they're in the portfolios of scores of millions of unwitting American retail investors.
0: So, so, Roger, let me just ask you what you think might be done about this. I mean, what should the U.S. be doing to, uh, to close you know, this, well, as you've described it, really big asymmetry between what the U.S. investor knows and what they're actually buying when it comes to Chinese stocks?
3: I mean, I think Chinese companies want to play in the U.S. markets. And I think that even Chinese leadership wants to uh, ensure that that kind of uh, market access continues. After all, the United States has about 66 percent, I believe, of the world's liquidity. And our capital markets are, roughly speaking, the size of the rest of the world's combined. And when you talk about going somewhere else, well, it begs the question, Is there somewhere else? I would argue largely no. The Chinese require hundreds of billions of dollars, underlying dollars a year, to keep their growth rate in the zone of viable. That is avoiding massive social unrest and even putting at risk the Chinese Communist Party's control. So I don't know how you get there if you truly estrange uh, the U.S. capital markets.
0: In recent weeks, U.S. regulators have threatened to delist a handful of Chinese companies that fail to comply with auditing rules. But the chances of cutting off China completely from U.S. markets seem slim. China needs U.S. dollars, and for American investors, there's money to be made in China's booming tech sector. Finance is just one area of concern for those worried about the entanglement of the US and China's tech ecosystems. The US reliance on China to manufacture its technology is provoking anxiety too.
3: We won't back down until China stops cheating our workers and stealing our jobs, and that's what's going to happen.
0: Otherwise, throughout the Trump presidency, Tariffs and export controls encouraged American tech companies to move their manufacturing out of China. We
4: don't have to do business. We can make the product right here if we have to, like we
3: used to. Remember? Like we used to.
0: President Trump may have been replaced, but even President Biden has continued with what some refer to as a Trump-lite policy on China. But China tech analyst Paul Triolo says abandoning Chinese factories is nigh on impossible. Just look at Apple, which makes the vast majority of its iPhones there. If China
2: sort of disappeared from their supply chain, um, Apple would be in a world of hurt. All the really cutting-edge stuff that they do is in China. And, and, and also all the, all the suppliers they have for the iPhone, for example, all the different... Pieces of the there's there's so many components that make up an iPhone. The bulk of those
0: are are coming from China. I mean, if there was an extreme scenario that unfolded and Apple was forced to decouple its supply chain from China, would there be an Apple? Well,
2: no, there wouldn't be an Apple as we know it. I mean, no. There, there's no way, for example, that if you if you somehow you know shut down the Zhengzhou facility, that Apple could produce iPhones and, and iPads in, in, in the in the quantity and at the quantity and price.
0: Apple is looking at manufacturing in other countries like India, but there are still massive challenges. Probably
2: on the high end, you're probably going to have over the next five years, you know, maybe five or ten percent of some advanced manufacturing move out of China, but not not a, not a lot. But also think about the the, the investment that that will, will require in terms of billions of dollars. The costs are prohibitive, and and so it's it's sort of this balance between geopolitical pressure and, and the realities um, of a given uh, sector's you know, sort of market-driven um, uh, concerns. <laughs> and you know who's going to pay for it, too? <laughs> who's going to pay for moving my factory out of China?
0: Apple is just one of many U.S. companies that does business in China, because over decades, China has built a complex and efficient manufacturing hub for high-end technology. And it turns out Paul's family has direct experience of this.
2: My brother is in uh, the contract manufacturing business, or at least managing that uh, through a company in in the, in the Silicon Valley. And they did the most of their contract manufacturing in China. They loved the support there. It was, they said it was amazing the service they could get 24 hours to really turn around changes in the manufacturing process. And then they moved the plant to Mexico (laughs) and they, they found a totally different world there where they couldn't get serviced. It was sort of sloppy production and they had to do a lot more oversight of the workers there and, of the project in general. So they were very disappointed. And they sort of look longingly back at China. So there's a lot of challenges in decoupling
0: in that supply chain space. U.S. authorities are in a bind. There is a desire to be less reliant on Chinese supply chains and to put limits on U.S. technology being exported to Chinese customers. But if we start counting the trillions of U.S. dollars tied up in this symbiotic system... Well, it gets complicated. The difficulty of anything but a superficial decoupling starts to come into view. so I think there
2: there's going to be a, an attempt to you know narrow the scope of this decoupling to the key areas and articulate a better strategy around you know why there's a national security imperative for controlling this or that technology. When you talk to Biden administration officials, there is this realization that you know these economies are too tied together
0: to sort of, you know, force them apart in some fundamental way. Wholesale decoupling may be a tough sell in Washington, but in Beijing, there are signs China is already turning its tech industry inward of its own accord. President Xi Jinping says he wants to see tech giants focus more on China itself and work towards a common prosperity at home. Could you just introduce yourself so that we can have the the audio of you speaking? Yeah, Kevin Rudd. I'm the
4: former Prime Minister of Australia and I'm the President of the Asia Society in New York.
0: Kevin Rudd is a long-time China watcher who's met Xi Jinping several times in his diplomatic and political career. China,
4: though it does not use the term, in fact it publicly despises the term decoupling, Nonetheless, through its own national doctrine of technological self-sufficiency, is proceeding in precisely that direction.
0: If America thinks it's in the driver's seat when it comes to decoupling, it's fooling itself. In many ways, China started tech decoupling long before the US. Rudd says China's ambition to make its tech sector more independent comes down to an argument inside China. What should come first? a profitable tech sector, or national security. We don't simply have this
4: magical black box called the Chinese Party State, which has a uniform view on everything. It's more contested internally than that. There are those within the Chinese system who deeply critique, uh, for example, the current pattern of um, Chinese economic nationalism.
0: That's one camp. Rudd says they're advocating for a global, more free market China.
4: On the other hand, the Chinese party state and the security apparatus are driven by a different set of concerns, not the efficient use of capital, but actually the ultimate security and survivability of the party. So are these two sets of constituencies at work in the Chinese system, who currently is dictating the traffic, it's the intelligence security and what I describe as party apparatus as opposed to the generation of financial and economic technocrats.
0: For nearly half a century, China has been fixated on economic growth. Under the former Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping, it was the idea of economic development as the core truth, or Fa Ying Dao Li in Chinese. But the US-China rivalry is intensifying Beijing's shift away from this old economic mantra. Right now, it's the security of the state that's taking precedence over economic development. This marks a massive change in how China is governed. Kevin Rudd doesn't think decoupling is going to happen anytime soon, but that's certainly the direction of travel. Are we headed towards a bipolar world then? It's beginning to
4: look like that. But if I was to ask you tomorrow, would each side agree to a decoupling of trade? Probably not. Would they agree to a decoupling of capital markets? Probably not. Would they agree to a decoupling of currency markets? That's already occurred because the renminbi is not tradable. Would they agree to a decoupling of technology markets? Probably for the reasons we've just discussed. Decoupling of talent markets? Increasingly so, but the trend line is in the direction that you described but the conditions precedent are not all there yet.
0: Regardless of which side is instigating it, separating the US and Chinese tech sectors would be potentially crippling for both. That's why the great decoupling narrative that dominates the media and politics these days is either highly suspect or hopelessly vague. Beijing and Washington both have hawkish factions, Despite the political considerations, decoupling would have an enormous and unsustainable impact on the two countries, not to mention the fallout for the rest of the world. Over the course of this season of Tectonic, I've seen two broad themes emerge in the story of the US-China tech race. The first is the pervasive anxiety in the US about China's technological rise. It's caused the U.S. to challenge China in all kinds of ways. There's the crackdown on Chinese espionage, putting scientific exchange between the two sides at risk.
1: This is something we often
4: hear from the government, the argument that people of Chinese descent are somehow more prone to committing acts of economic espionage.
0: There's the efforts to stop China getting hold of the technology and know-how that could help it steal a lead on the US and strengthen its military.
4: They're targeting biotech, nanotech, ag tech, um, quantum technologies. The breadth of the technologies that they intend to acquire is really breathtaking. I mean, it is across the board. It is part and parcel of their attempt to build a siege economy in technology.
0: And the second theme is that China insists on being in control of its own technological future to become a self-sufficient technological superpower, trying to build its own semiconductor industry, forge its own path into space. Now we see China building a space station of its own, uh, developing a lunar exploration program of its own. If you want to be a superpower on the world stage, uh, you've got to be able to use space. And trying to grow its influence internationally, exporting surveillance tech around the world. I uh, counted 18th of these new tech high definition cameras covering this square. What we are afraid of is to have the whole city covered with this state-of-the-art technology. Perhaps the reason there's a technology war isn't really because of technology at all. It's a fundamental distrust between two global superpowers. Technology is just the battleground because whoever controls technology controls the future. A final thought from Kevin Rudd. The US-China
4: relationship, um, however it's described officially by Washington and Beijing can best be seen as a relationship now anchored in direct strategic competition at every level. It is the most adversarial the relationship has been in for the last 50 years since uh, Nixon and Kissinger first went to China in 72. Technology, together with finance, are now described as the central theatres through which that competition is conducted short of full-blown war.
0: You've been listening to Tectonic. We'll be going on a break until our next season, which will be released this summer. I'm the FT's Global China editor, James King. Our senior producer is Edwin Lane, and our producer is Josh gabbett doyon Manuela Saragossa is our executive producer, our head of audio is Cheryl Brumley, and our sound engineer is Breen Turner. Music on this season composed by Metaphor Music. If you like the series, do leave us a review. It helps other people get to know about our show. And for more stories about technology from the FT, head to the links in the show notes. Also there is a discounted FT subscription offer. You can listen to every episode of this Tectonic season by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts.